0: All right, hi, Zane Horowitz, and it's the Oregon Poison Center Journal Club for April 19th, 2007, and we're talking today uh, about Prussian blue, a antidote which we possibly might use for uh, cesium and thallium in the dirty bomb scenario with cesium. It's sort of been uh, recently um, of interest, and so we're going to start out talking about its older use for thallium, talk about uh, initially a case report and some other data, and we'll kind of try to sum up some things after that and move on. So, let's start with uh, Martin Epson talking about an article out of Clintox about a
1: case report of how a typical case might unfold. So, this is um, Martin Epson, and I'm talking about an article treatment of severe thallium intoxication out of Clinical Toxicology, 1997. And this is a case report of a 38-year-old woman who was admitted to the emergency department. This is uh, out of um, Antwerp in Belgium. 38-year-old woman admitted to the emergency department two hours following uh, drinking 250 milliliters of a suspension containing 35 grams per liter of thallium sulfate. Um, Basically, vomiting had been induced in transport, and on, on arrival... Initial assessment showed that the Glasgow Coma Scale was 15 out of 15, blood pressure was 132 over 70, pulse 74, and she's afebrile. Her physical physical exam is um, unremarkable, and they begin loading her with several different um, treatment agents. Uh, Gastric lavage is initially performed. Prussian blue uh, was administered via a gastric tube, 3 grams at once, followed by 500 milligrams suspension and 50 milliliters of mannitol, 15%. And this is given six times a day. Uh, initially, lactulose was added. Um, she received IV fluids, potassium chloride. was added to maintain serum potassium in the high to normal range, 4.5 to 5.0 millimeters per liter. And basically, what they started in uh, this initial assessment and workup. First, the urine showed that uh, there was a green discoloration, confirming that there was indeed thallium intake. We'll talk about some of the, um, in the discussion, some of the initial things you see and, in patients with uh, thallium exposure. Um, because of the, the large amount of thallium ingested, hemodialysis was started. Um, And get into the details of exactly how they, what equipment they use, but um, this is kind of the initial um, presentation of the patient. And we can go through the course, but I thought it'd be useful to actually just talk about the history and sense of what thallium. Um, is. Thaline was discovered in 1861 by Sir William Crookes. This is coming actually from a good little history synopsis of the second article. And it was originally it was u- used uh, to treat syphilis, gonorrhea, tuberculosis, uh, as well as an epilent for uh, tinea capitis infections. Um, although thaline was quite effective, um, it's basically its narrow therapeutic index resulted in many cases of severe systemic toxicity or death. Basically, by 1934, nearly 700 cases of thallotoxicosis, including 46 de- deaths, were summarized in the medical literature, and human administration was basically ra- rapidly abandoned. Um, however, they, they discovered that thallium sulfate it was recognized to be um, really a superior pesticides because of their absence of odor and taste. Um, and we saw that over-the-counter availability of, of these preparations for killing roaches and rats were widely available. By 1965, in the United States, household use of thallium was restricted. However, just uh, basically due to these numerous and unintentional poisonings. So one of the things they found that even after restricting its use just due to adulteration of drugs and some of the contamination of thallium in drugs, contamination of herbal products, and as well as attempted homicides that, um, with rodenticides, that it was still pretty, unfortunately, kind of common for people to be exposed to it. In 1997, there were 147 cases of thallium exposure, with uh, 26 uh, resulting in toxicity. That's a pretty amazing number. When you think
0: about it, it's use, it's any commercial use of it in the United States was banned 30 years prior to that and still there's 140 cases per year still that uh, still pop up.
1: So. so getting back to the the case report, um, basically during the first hours of admission that for this patient, this um, woman with Valium uh, ingestion, basically the patient described the colicky abdominal pain um, followed by constipation for 48 hours. On day three, she started to complain of some paresthesia, pain, and weakness in the lower extremities. Uh, Riboflavin was added to kind of help counteract this, and the administration of this oral Prussian Blue, as we talked about, which was started right in the beginning, um, was discontinued on day 21. You want to talk about the dialysis too? As they did. Oh, as far as the dialysis <coughs> In terms of her treatment, they started that pretty much day one. Yeah, they did. They started human dialysis, um, and it was I think I don't, I don't know about the how often they. Did well, yeah, it was it was seven every. It
0: was daily for the first seven, seven days, days, and yeah. it was like every third or second day after yeah. that. So it had about almost Nine ten cases of di- dialysis and uh,
1: to try to clear it as well. Right hemodialysis was stopped when the cerium-thallium level was 49 micrograms per liter, and the urine-thallium was 164 micrograms per liter. Now, just to contrast this, the the initial cerium-thallium level to confirm the, the exposure was 5,240 micrograms per liter, and the urine-thallium was 69,600 micrograms. So we dropped in urine from 69,000 um, down to less than... Um, 200 as far as urine concentration of thallium. Um, As far as the course, um, on day 16, um, electrophysiologic examination showed some significant sensory motor and axonal polyneuropathy of the lower extremities. Hair loss, which is uh, also very common, became evident after days 18 and resulted in complete alopecia by day 25. Um, during the hospitalization it was it's important to note that there was no cardiac pulmonary or central or CNS disturbances, um, which are some of the early signs that we want to be looking for. <clears throat> um, three weeks later the serum thallium was still at a concentration of 5.6 micrograms per liter and the urine was still at 100 micrograms per liter so um, one month later the concentrations dropped below the, and the polyneuropathy. Uh, complaints um, pretty much completely disappeared as, and, there, and her hair started to grow back so um, really uh, when they go on in the sense of their discussion they talk about their, it's very effective in the sense of rodenticides but it has extreme toxicity in humans um, therefore it's resulted in the prohibition and use in many countries uh, acute Uh, Severe thallium poisoning most often occurs after accidental or intentional ingestion of thallium sulfate. Um, After oral ingestion, thallium is quickly absorbed from the GI tract with rapid rise in serum levels during the first four hours. Uh, Thallium can already basically be detected in the urine one hour after this ingestion and results in a green discoloration, as we saw in the patient. Which is a good useful bedside test if you're suspicious because
0: it's hard, very hard to get levels in any sort of real time. So if the urine has this kind of light pale green discoloration, that should be a big clue. you get yeah. a call out of the blue saying what makes your urine green. One of bad things on top of my list.
1: Yeah. And basically, it's, just, it's very quickly absorbed. Um, and, and in the beginning of the excretion, this is the, the urine um, aspect of it. But it, intracellularly, there's a fast um, distribution within the intracellular as well as the extracellular compartments. Um, basically, it's completed within 24 hours. So, thallium is excreted by the kidney, 40%. But the, uh, initial, the thing that's actually important, which leads into the second article, there's a significant amount of enterohepatic cycling, which is why it's actually useful to use charcoal in the sense of treating it because it helps get at the, the thallium that's going through that, that um, recycling process over after that 24 to 48-hour period. Um, because of the large tissue distribution thallium is still present in the urine three months after ingestion and the symptomatology and clinical course are variable of course um, due to the multi-organ distribution of thallium um, and it's modified by the total amount of ingested as well as the interval taken between treatment and dosage and those kind of things so, um, immediately after ingestion as we saw vomiting and abdominal cramps may occur uh, constipation usually follows during the first two to three days. Uh, after three to seven days, pain and tenderness uh, in the legs and hyperesthesia of the soles of the feet develops. In the second week, there is a further evaluation of the painful peripheral neuropathy, which results in a weakness, areflexia, and muscle atrophy of the lower limbs. Um, cardiovascular tachycardia hypertension disturbances may become prominent, leading to cardiac failure and pulmonary edema, which... They observed in this patient didn't occur, and it's a good thing. Uh, respiratory failure, failure can occur due to muscle paralysis. Uh, hair loss, as we saw, uh, appears and progresses to almost complete alopecia at the end of the third week. Because this is variable, uh, the prognosis is un- unpredictable. Early death is possible, and is the, the key thing. Um, but serious complications such as cardiac and respiratory failure usually present after eight days. So that's the time frame, the period that we're really dealing with. Uh, Full recovery is delayed, but possible, although neurologic sequelae are usual. And the exact mechanism of thallium toxicity is unknown. Uh, Some authors suggest that the neuropathy is a consequence of energy deprivation due to thallium-induced depletion of tissue flavoproteins. Basically, a tissue depletion of riboflavin could impair some of the energy-essential basically depriving the metabolic pathways instead of, like, depleting yeah. them. Another suggestion, thallium, combined thallium act of sulfur hydrase enzymes. Basically, the, it's designed to, the treatment is designed to kind of interrupt these, these, um, theoretic, theoretical, theoretical, uh, mechanisms for toxicity. Um, after 48 hours, the tissue distribution of thallium in the body is almost completed. Because, uh, recovery is unpredictable, intensive therapy is usually advised, um, Removal removal of thallium from the GI tract should be started by vomiting or gastric lavage. Both um, lavage was started in this patient, and then getting at um, a little bit closer topic to what we're talking about. Immediately thereafter, Prussian blue um, at a dose of five to twenty grams per day, divided into two to four doses, should be administered by lavage. Prussian blue in this is article, it, I mean this article says Prussian blue is superior to activated charcoal. This acts as an ion exchanger, exchanging potassium for thallium, thereby enhancing fecal elimination, reducing or blocking absorption, and interrupting the enterohepatic cycle, which we'll get to later. So the, the second article is going to compare the efficacy of thallium absorption by activated charcoal, Prussian blue, and sodium polystyrene sulfonate, which we'll get to in a second. So... Um, And the other things they talk about. Uh, One of the issues with the extensive um, distribution of thallium uh, chelating agents like d-penicillamine or others, or um, or included IV infusions of potassium chloride, can um, mobilize thallium from the tissues. So they basically these are used to extract thallium from the tissues, and then you can kind of bring it out of you know its vast distribution. Um, the redistribution of thallium, especially in, to the brain, may aggravate some of these neurological symptoms, and the administration of supplemental potassium chloride is not generally recommended in the first 48 hours. So that's something that we could have made and they actually did in the case. Um, potassium chloride enhances urinary excretion of thallium by mobilizing thallium from intracellular compartments and by decreasing tubular reabsorption. So basically, in, in, in the end, they, they talk about a patient with massive thallium sulfate ingestion. Aggressive treatment was associated with a successful outcome, and the contribution of early hemodialysis to this treatment, as well as potassium chloride, uh, for supplemental treatment seemed effective, and there was a pretty good outcome, in since it recovered.
0: You know, although they say KCL supplementation, there are other sources and articles that sort of warn against too aggressive use of potassium chloride because it actually, like you said, will mobilize thallium from its deep storage spaces and may redistribute it to the brain where it will cause more problems. So uh, you know, again, someone has kind of overstated the importance of a single case report, but um, clearly the therapies, including some degree of gastric emptying, chelation with the Prussian blue, which we'll talk about a lot more, and then hemodialysis uh, is probably effective, at least they showed that with the levels. So the second article, there's a good, good presentation. The second article is kind of interesting. A study figuring out which of the three different sort of adsorbents, so to speak, or chelators, um, were best in the study. So.
1: Yeah, and this is just—it's uh, a study coming out of the New York City Poison Control Center and out of NYU, and it's a—it's uh, enti- titled "A Comparative Efficacy of Thallium Absorption by Activated Charcoal, Prussian Blue, and Sodium Polystyrene Sulfonate," which is KX light. KX light, basically. Okay. Yeah, and. Um, the background is, you know, although Prussian blue is considered the antidote of choice for thallium poisoning, there's a, the FDA hasn't approved a pharmaceutical formulation that has led to, for, for actually treatment of thallium. So well, at the time of that the time, writing. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and this is actually put out in 1999. So uh, activated charcoal has been demonstrated to absorb thallium in vitro. And this is, this is important. This is an in vitro study. And this is similarity between thallium and potassium has led some authors to consider the use of k as a potential absorbent. Uh, and this is just an experiment. It's designed basically to compare this relative thallium-binding efficacy of these agents. Um, so really, and the, I mean, this, the history that I read to you before is actually from this, talking about um, the use of thallium, where it comes from. And, um, and really the last part of it that I read was the, in 1987, the 147 thallium exposures were reported to poison centers across the U.S., with 26 resulting in toxicity. Um, the treatment of thallium-exposed patients basically begins with the... They talk about the GI contamination. That gets back to the lavage as well as the Prussian blue. Um, and they kind of get into... Most of, and they actually also talk about the use of chelating, chelating agents, BAL, EDTA, and pen, d penicillamine, um, and they kind of e- showed that they were either detrimental or minimal utility in terms of the of thallium toxicity. Um, basically, because of the, the they talk about the, because of the physical and biochemical similarities between thallium and potassium. The, there's an issue of whether or not cell membranes cannot differentiate between thallium and potassium. And the reason why is because they're really close in size. In the sense of the angstrom is 1.47 in thallium and 1.33 uh, for potassium. So they think that, they would think that you know, it would be pretty easy to tell. But um, as a result, thallium ions accumulate in areas of high potassium concentration, such as the CNS, liver, and muscles. KXLate basically is an oral um, ion exchange resin with little or no intrinsic intoxic- in, uh, toxicity, and it's been and basically been used to lower serum potassium. You use it in cases of hyperkalemia. Um, um, so, if um, basically what they wanted to look at it, you know, if K-X-Late were demonstrated to be in absorbed thallium, it could either replace Prussian blue or provide an immediate treatment pending the availability of Prussian blue we're um, we gonna you're t- we, we gonna talk about that Prussian blue little thing right here in the beginning you' talk a little bit about it, but we you just go through you know okay. finish the methods and okay. results and we're going to go into Prussian blue in a second so what they did was actually they created a, a number of different s- solutions um, aqueous stock solutions of thallium acetate so they're looking at thallium what they're going to do is going to put it in a bunch of these different um, you know Uh, Containers and what they're going to do is check and looking at how much is absorbed or bound by uh, Prussian blue um, activated charcoal as then. Hexalate, and each each of these solutions, they added potassium in order to they they just did these solutions in the of without potassium, then they added potassium at a concentration of 4.0 milliequivalents per liter in order to in, to mimic physiological conditions because you know, if if it can't you know be used in physiological conditions, it's not really useful, and they they go- went through and they had a complex you know, little. Um, uh, process of looking at basically the atomic absorption, using used, looking used, uh, with a spectro yeah. A spectrometer. Yeah, the way to measure most heavy metals,
0: thallium including, right. is the base the, the gold standard for that is using something called atomic absorption spectrophotometry. So whenever any, anyone does some sort of colorimetric method for determining lead or something else, it's not really the gold standard. And really, the gold standard is this AAS. Technique that uh, was used here, so it's good that they used that.
1: Okay. So, what they so they went through this whole process looking at all basically all six, looking at the, each of the, the solutions without potassium, look at the solutions with potassium, uh, and comparing the two um, or two sets, but all six of them together. Um, and basically, what they found is that KXLate was uh, very effective. At uh, being able to absorb thallium, but the problem is caxalate fell dramatically in terms of its ability to bind thallium. Um, So it went from ability to bind thallium at a level of 90, almost 95%, I think, in terms of the numbers that they gave as for its ma- maximum absorbent capacity, but it fell to less than 6% in physiologic conditions. So it's, it has a much greater affinity in binding for potassium versus for thallium. So under physiologic conditions, it's not going to be able to differentiate, and it's not going to be...
0: It worked great as long as there's no
1: potassium exactly in like the that. mix, yeah. which is what we give Kxalate
0: for. It's for hyperkalemia. So when you give you know Kxalate and there's no potassium in this flask where you're mixing it with... Uh, Thallium, its maximum absorbent, um, absorptive capacity, the MAC is huge. For, for the criteria they use for it is like 713. But as soon as you bring your potassium back to normal physiologic blood concentrations of potassium, which is four milliequivalents, um, it falls down to like 39. And actually, of all the three solutions with potassium, and it actually it performs the, the worst. The
1: worst. Yeah, so
0: exactly. if you say have to assume there's potassium floating in your sea of your blood then, um, you know, you have to take that into account. Unfortunately, great thought. Caxalate would work, monovalent um, ion-like thallium, but, however, if, the, if uh, potassium is there in normal physiologic, it doesn't perform so well. So I thought it was a pretty uh, interesting study, the way they did obviously an in-vitro study in a flask, but it helped at least sort out, gee, if we had an option, could we use it? And the answer is, well, maybe just activate it Charcoal works
1: well. That's the thing. That's the interesting thing is they they showed that actually activated charcoal and the Prussian blue both at physiologic as well as um, in vitro studies were actually equivalent. So uh, they were able to bind and basically perform the duties of you know, what they, they've already been used for just as well. So it's kind of, you know, it has a little bit of a, not a contradiction necessarily, but adds a l- sheds a little bit more light, a little bit more data compared to the first article that says that um, Prussian blue is actually uh, a little bit better than activated charcoal So terms of in absorbing. So, and plus they're also working in different places too. So... But the main thing is, it just showed that KX like you said, is just not as effective in the in the vitro um, or in vivo kind of uh, situations, physiologic conditions. And they, they talk, they just their statement is the failure to evaluate um, KX in the presence of potassium invalidates any extension of basically these their result to any clinical reality. I mean, that's them kind of saying, <laughs> just not going to work. Yeah, so it's a good idea that
0: didn't pan out, at least in, in the lab in the flask, and no one's really tried it since then in, in human studies. So well, we move on, it's a great presentation. We'll talk about um, a few articles here. I'll, I'll talk about Bob Hoffman and his group out of uh, New York have had a lot of experience with thallium for some reason. still must be tons of it hide, hiding around and all the cellars, killing those giant rats they have back there. Um but they seem to get cases after case, and they've written a handful of case reports with malicious intent and other. And finally, I put together a nice review article in 2003 um, in toxicologic reviews. talks a little bit about thallium in depth, and I figured I'd just kind of hit some of the, the high points of that article as far as how it works and some evidence for how we treat it. So as you mentioned, it's a I think everyone knows that. But... What a lot of people probably don't realize is becoming more of an issue is it's, it's a waste product of uh, coal combustion, and it's a waste product of the manufacturing of cement. Um, and so we have environmental contamination with thallium that we're probably unaware of. Um, so it's atomic number 81. It's a soft metal. Now I always thought, because we had all these studies about um, thallium and potassium, these ion exchange resins, that it wasn't column one of the Periodic Table of Elements, but I pulled out my trusty Periodic Table of Elements this morning. Lo and behold there it was in column three and a thallium actually occurs in both a univalent uh, form, thallus salts, as well as a trivalent form, thallic salts. I always hate those is and ic names with arsenic and all those other ones, but I always like to just say how many valency it has. So the, the good news is a lot of things that are toxic are you all know, the thallus salts, the univalent salts, and so that's why the pursuit of with potassium will find out why that's important um, as well. It's actually has some, you know, uses. It's used in cosmetic jewelry and pigments, and semiconductors, and thermometers, optical lenses, fireworks, um, lighting, and the global production of thallium is probably about 12 tons a year, which isn't a lot if you think globally. Um, but there's a huge amount in surface rock formation, a variety of ores, and environmental contamination from thallium um, as opposed to production is 12 tons, tons a year that coal plants liberate about 600 tons of thallium per year as a bi-waste product. So environmentally maybe something where we start, if we if we've got all excited about mercury and arsenic and these other things in our environment, you know, thallium may be the next heavy metal that we're all going to, you know, bring our, our hands over and worry about what effect it has. But it's well absorbed by most routes. Um, Most of the cases we've ever seen in literature are oral. It's uh, water-soluble salt. It has a three compartment kinetic model so it's distributed through the extracellular fluid, the intracellular fluid, and perhaps a deep body distribution, uh, which is where why it will have a prolonged prolonged half-life as it re-equilibrates back out through those three compartment uh, models. So there's delayed distribution into the central nervous system and probably delayed redistribution from uh, some of these deep tissues, such as the liver, kidney, heart, brain, muscles. Um, organic thallium salts, mostly thallus, the univalent form, malleate, distribute more rapidly than the inorganic salts, which would be things like chlorides and sulfates. Um, but ultimately, they, same, they obtain the same level of distribution throughout the body. Um, And it's eliminated, as we saw in the previous uh, couple of discussions in the urine, uh, but it's also eliminated to a small degree in the feces. And because it's eliminated in the GI tract, it undergoes this enteropatic circulation where it goes through the liver, it's excreted through the biliary tree, dumped back into the intestines, and then further downstream reabsorbed again. And the idea behind the treatment is put something in the middle of that process, whether it's charcoal or Prussian blue, and we bind up that extra thallium and we take it out of the body Um, through the back door, so to speak. Um, It's a little bit about pathophysiology. Um, It it looks a lot like potassium, and that's why a lot of the things that it disrupts are enzymes that are linked to potassium. It accumulates in areas where potassium likes to live, the liver, the brain, the muscle. And, um, in fact, we use thallium. The way we use thallium is we have radio-labeled thallium studies to look at your heart. So when someone goes for a dipthalium, tests to find out about their cardiac perfusion, it's only because thallium goes where your potassium goes, and if there's dead tissue and it's not taking up potassium, that tells us there's a problem with perfusion in your heart, and thallium has some good uses there. But in toxic doses, it starts to inhibit the potassium-dependent enzymes, such as the sodium-potassium um, ATPase pump, same one that's uh, inhibited by uh, DIGE. And more importantly, at an intercellular level, at the mitochondrial level, it inhibits pyruvate kinase, which is sort of a key enzyme, takes us from the glycolysis where we have glucose coming in and it goes through fructose. And if you see those of are following along here um, on the next page, shows you glucose all the way down to pyruvate. Well, pyru- the last step before you get to pyruvate, which is dumped into the Krebs cycle, is this enzyme pyruvate kinase. And so it disrupts that, so you don't make the building blocks of energy that you need to dump into the Krebs cycle and start generating energy. The Krebs cycle is going to generate all these high phosphate bonds, like NADH and FADH, and that's going to dump into the electron transport chain at the mitochondrial surface where you generate ATP. That's and it also as well uncouples oxidative phosphorylation there. So several ways along the way, it inhibits pyruvate kinase and glycolysis. It probably uh, inhibits a few points along the Krebs cycle. Um, and causes problems, as we saw with um, the electron transport chain, which is why I think in that first study they tried to use riboflavin to overcome some of that FADH uh, inhibition that is talked about, and ultimately you end up with acidosis, much in the same way we see severe acidosis with cyanide or any of those oxidative un- uh decouplers. And histologically, you look at the mitochondria, you see vacuolization is swelling after people are exposed to thallium, so that suggests that indeed that's where it acts at the mitochondrial level inside the cellular process. Um, now, thallium has a much higher affinity for a lot of these enzymes than potassium does. At one point in this article it talks about 50 times the affinity, at another point it talks about tenfold greater, so it's somewhere between 50 and 100. Um, and one model um, Following the administration of thallium to mice, the ATP concentrations rose as the sodium potassium ATPase enzyme was inhibited, and then at high concentrations, over time, the thallium concentrations fell, the activity occurred, and then the ATP concentrations reverted to normal. So it's inhibiting the conversion of ATP to these high phosphate-linked energy-producing bonds. There's probably a variety of other enzymes, I'm not going to go through every last one of them, but around the body, including some vitamin B12-dependent enzymes that are inhibited by it. Now, thallium, like a lot of other metals, has a high affinity also for sulfhydro groups. All sulfur groups, so that's why we give NAC to some people, so no one's investigated that. But there's a lot of sulfide bonds in our hair, our nails, and our skin, and one of the areas that we see Characteristically, with thallium poisoning, is disruption of these. So, a the classic thing is the alopecia; your hair falls out about a week or so after the exposure. But if you look carefully, you see Mees lines, which are these pale white lines that are classically associated with arsenic poisoning, um, but have been associated with thallium poisoning as well. And although to be completely fair, the original name was the Mees Aldrich lines, and Aldrich probably described it a few years before Mees did, but for some reason he got all the credit. Um, anyway, moving forward, some other issues, um, lipid peroxidation, ribosyme, uh synthesis of protein that are dependent on potassium, and a variety of other areas around the body that it's thought that thallium exerts its toxic um, effects. The end product was what it does clinically. The focal area where we're most concerned is what it does in the brain. When they've done autopsies on people and animals, they find uh, destruction in the motor cortex, the third nerve, the substantia nigra, the globus pallidus. A lot of that, if those names sound familiar, sound like where carbon monoxide also works. Classic carbon monoxide poisoning involves uh, the globus pallidus and the motor (coughs) cortex. And then there's a peripheral axonopathy that occurs, a classic dying back, producing this distal paresthesia, which is quite severe in these cases. So, what are the clinical manifestations? We heard a pretty good case report of someone who had what they had. Medicinally, doses as low as 8 milligrams per kilogram have been associated with fatalities in children. In adults, it's about 10 to 15 milligrams per kilogram. Um, It was used as a depilatory agent to induce alopecia in areas where you wanted to induce alopecia as a topical agent, and typically occurs about 10 days following exposure. So... The other pathognomonic findings is a sensory neuropathy, which they say is almost pathognomonic of thallium toxicity. It's typically the soles of the feet are most affected. However, they talk about some series, case series, where only 25% of the cases really were uh, affected by that. Um, Initially, you may see nausea, vomiting, but eventually, very uniquely, I should say, thallium often induces constipation. And that's pretty atypical when we look, took at metal poisoning, we look at um, iron ingestion, classically with a lot of nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, arsenic, you have this rice water stool, but with thallium, you have constipation after the initial irritative effect that causes nausea and vomiting. Um, and they postulate without real evidence for what it may be involved, maybe for some vagus nerve inhibition. Um, and it might lead you down the wrong route to think of like infant bot and a variety of other things that cause constipation. But constipation is a pretty rare toxicologic manifestation. So after the GI complaints that sort have of died down after three to five days, you have peripheral effects, a severe, painful, progressive, ascending sensory neuropathy. So soles of the feet, palms of the hands, starts coming up the wrists and stocking gloves and eventually goes... Up higher, and things have been described like the weight of the bed sheets were so excruciating the patient couldn't lay in bed with something lying across their legs. It's this is terrible, painful paresthesia. Um, at the same time, when you do an exam, they have decreased sensation to pinprick, touch, temperature, vibration, and proprioception. So, sort of pan um, sensory uh, um, detriments when actually tested at a bedside exam. And then a motor neuropathy may occur in a small number of cases with, again, a distal distribution. Up to and including loss of deep deep tending reflexes. So, the big bad thing is the large exposures causing central nervous system toxicity, headache, insomnia, anxiety, confusion, delirium, psychosis, all the seizures, and coma. Um, they're dose dependent, ataxia may be one of the earlier findings. And on, but only may occur as early as 48 hours after exposure, so it's not a very early acute finding. And then coma is again associated with dose and it in and of itself has a bad prognosis. And then there's these cranial nerve findings that can occur, predominantly nystagmus, ptosis, as we saw in the previously mentioned autopsy studies, third nerve, fourth nerve, and sixth nerve seem to be the most involved. Um, confusion, there may be slowing of the EEG, Following the first week or so, they may have other problems like hypertension and tachycardia, some dysautonomia. And then they can also have a second nerve optic neuropathy uh, from the retina and neural retina as well. And about in one study, about a quarter of patients will experience some degree of visual injury. And those who are repeated to multiple small doses almost always uh, show some sort of optic damage. There may be some sort of small, low dose that somehow selects out the optical nerve rather than the cranial nerves around the eye. They develop central scotoma alumina, keratitis, cataracts, and a blue-colored deficit. So, imperceptible from Viagra misuse. Um, thallium uh, bioaccumulates in the kidney, uh, greater than any other tissue. You can have decreased creatinine clearance decreased blood, elevated BUN elevated creatinine albuminuria uh, and destruction of the ascending loop of Henle and then the skin we talked about how it can be scaly and have these lines and then a variety of other things so how do you most of the times a diagnosis is made because someone intentionally or purposely is poisoned with it it's radioopaque like other metals so getting a KUB, which we infrequently think of doing in toxicologic you might see the suspected food source or tampered with food source, I know there's a famous case with marzipan balls uh, several years ago where someone gave candy to his girlfriend and they all got sick and they figured it out by seeing that on their GI tract films. And then they say if you're really, really good, if you pluck a hair early on, you can see discolorations at the root of the hair early even before you can detect anything else. I'm not sure I'm that good, but just one of those little tidbits. Ultimately we need thallium concentrations in the urine and serum to make the diagnosis. Invariably, those are send out tests and pretty much everywhere that we work, um, they're probably sent out. And again, the standard gold standard is atomic absorption, spectroscopy, and a 24-hour urine sample. Normal urine should be negligible amounts, five micrograms per liter. A little bit about teratogenicity. It does cross the placenta. There may be some limb abnormalities. There was a review of 297 children Born to asymptomatic mothers who lived in a high industrial thallium contaminated. They found high levels in the children, um, but not a higher. Uh, they did find a small higher level of incidence of congenital abnormalities, although they couldn't create a cause and effect um, there. So let's talk about management. We talked about the gastric emptying. What about this Prussian blue, um, which is what the title of this journal club was? I wonder if we're going to get around to that. Well, we call it Prussian blue, but depends where you go in the world, it's got a lot of different names: Berlin blue, Chinese blue, Hamburg blue, Paris blue. Every city in this in the world wants to claim this as their own. It seems. Um, It actually comes in two forms. There is a ferric ferrocyanide and a potassium ferric ferrocyanide, and these are sometimes referred to as the soluble and insoluble forms of. Prussian blue, and there probably is some difference as we get into how we treat differently thallium, and we'll hear about shortly cesium, um, of which of those two drugs we should pick. And this is a complex crystal lattice structure, serves as an ion exchanger for univalent cations, and therefore has a great affinity for univalent phallus things. If there's a thallic compound, it may not be as good. It's given orally, is felt in general not to be excreted or absorbed, although um, Hoffman does comment that they've had some cases where their sweat and tears turn blue, as Prussian blue is blue, and therefore they have to, you know, assume that it's being absorbed and excreted in tears and sweat as well. And uh, the colloidal form, or the water-soluble form, seems to be better for thallium, uh, as far greater absorptive capacity. Now, the problem is there are no human control trials, like there isn't a lot of toxicology. There's a lot of anecdotal case reports and case series to say this probably works. So he tries to go through a few of these. Um, first, he talks about how thallium was known to be absorbed to activated charcoal, and he talked about the maximum absorbed to of thallium, is greatest for Prussian blue, although he talked about his own study where perhaps uh, activated charcoal is equal to that, and how k isn't... Um, likely to be that particularly useful because of the potassium issue.
1: There's
0: a variety of animal studies out there where sublethal doses were given to rats and uh, the ones who got thallium had a 93 percent excretion whereas the ones who got a controlled group only a 50 percent excretion. And a variety of other investigations that all seem to support that Prussian blue decreases the half-life of thallium in animals, decreases the thallium content in critical organs such as the brain and the heart, and that typically half-lives will fall but 50% when oral Prussian blue was given with or, or without a cathartic although the reason they give the cathartic is that the patients who are really thallium toxic tend to be severely constipated and Prussian blue in itself tends to be a little constipating so that's why it's traditionally mixed with mannitol or as in the case we still hear lactulose is sometimes needed. Goes on to talk about a variety of case reports but states that not a single reference has ever suggested any significant adverse effects, but no one's ever studied it in a organized fashion. And um, the one case series of 11 thallium poison patients were treated with Prussian blue. They seemed to tolerate it well. They didn't even have any problems. They all had fecal elimination that remained high, even after the urinary elimination fell, suggesting that really is this redistribution of gastrointestinal dialysis compound, uh, component that the thallium is dumped into the gut, taken up by the Crystal of the, the Prussian blue and dumped in the PCs. The dosages are about 150 to 250 milligrams per kilogram today, a day, given in divided doses. We'll talk about that in a second with the at the end. Briefly mention some of the other chelators, only just to poo-poo them that they really don't work. DMPs, EDTA, even diethylcarb. Um,